Today, I want to welcome you to a truly special episode of Earth to Humans. My guest today has journeyed across continents, climates, and cultures to unravel some of the most complex intricacies of our natural world. David Quammen joins us today, a renowned science writer whose works offer us a lens to view and better understand the depths and mysteries of our ecosystems. The breadth of his work is truly unparalleled, and his writing is both fascinating and terrifying, funny and exhilarating, scientific and empathetic. I'm at a book club of all lady biologists, and we have read a number of his books together, including The Song of the Dodo, Monster of God, about man-eating predators, and his latest book, The Heartbeat of the Wild. But my favorite book of his, so far anyway, is probably his 2012 book, Spillover, about zoonotic infections and the next human pandemic. From the far reaches of rainforests to the urban heartlands, David's explorations beautifully bridge hard science with compelling storytelling and leave you more in awe of the world we inhabit. And I feel a little bit smarter after every book. I'm Serena Simons, and welcome to the Earth to Humans podcast. typical work trip for me might involve going, say, to the Democratic Republic of the Congo or Republic of the Congo or Gabon and walking through the forest for days and walking through the swamps and sleeping in a tent and eating out of a common stew pot and living on beans and rice and scribbling a lot of notes and getting up at 4.30 in the morning to duct tape my feet to protect them for the next day's walk. I'm thinking of a particular set of assignments now. Um, what was the first, I guess, big expedition that you did in your career? And what was it like kind of going through the ringer in those kinds of conditions? The just, you know, how, how crazy that kind of lifestyle can be? Well, in a way, Serena, my first expedition was moving to Montana in 73 after graduate school. I had gone, I had had a very privileged education, came from a middle-class family in Cincinnati, um, went to Yale because they had a great English department and got a fine education there, then went to Oxford for a couple of years and did a graduate degree. And then I was just up to here with ivy-covered walls of these great, august elite institutions, and I wanted to live closer to the ground, as I said to some friends then. And so I got back from England and I moved to Montana, just jumped in my Volkswagen bus and I had a fishing rod and I had a boxes of books and drove to Montana with an electric typewriter, said, now I'm going to be a writer in Montana. 
I had already published one book at that point, so I had a little bit of wind in my sails. I, I was off to a start, and I thought, and I had published a novel in 1970, almost 52 years ago, my first book. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. And, um, and I had started as a fiction writer. So I thought, now I'm going to go to Montana and be a novelist. Well, I learned that um, it's hard to make a living as a novelist, even if you're lucky enough to have published your first book very young. So over the course of about 12 or 13 years, trying to write a publishable second novel and writing a number of novels that weren't good, I made a living as a, a waiter and a bartender and a fishing guide and read nonfiction and discovered nonfiction and discovered that I loved nonfiction as a reader and then started to write nonfiction about the natural world mm -hmm. and discovered that I loved that and then gradually learned how to be a freelance nonfiction writer. Never went to journalism school, never went to creative writing school, did it all by trial and error with lots and lots of error and uh, continued to, you know, work these crummy day jobs for a long time. Beginning in about 1981, I became a full-time freelancer. And in the course of that time, I was starting to write about activities and adventures in, in the outdoors. But in Montana, fly fishing. I became a fanatical fly fisherman. Uh, winter camping, cross-country skiing, backcountry skiing, snow camping. And I started to write about those things. So in a way, those were my first expeditions. Mm -hmm. But in terms of being sent on assignment to do something ambitious, that began, I would, meanwhile, I was writing for Outside Magazine, and they had, they had asked me to write a column, and I wrote a, na a natural science column for Outside Magazine for 15 years. Oh, and then I started my first ambitious nonfiction book project, which was The Song of the Dodo. Mm, and I started so that good. in 1980. In 1986, I wrote something about island biogeography for my column. 1987, I wrote a proposal to do a book on island biogeography and and everything that we have learned from island biogeography about evolution and extinction. Mm -hmm. The origins of biological diversity and the loss of biological diversity and how important Edward O. Wilson's ideas about island biogeography were to conservation generally. So I said, I'm going to write a book about this. I got a Guggenheim Fellowship that helped me with the early research I took some of that money. I had I had zero money, but I had this Guggenheim. And the first thing I did was buy a plane ticket to Madagascar. I had always wanted to go to Madagascar. Madagascar is this amazing world of endemic species. I spent a month in Madagascar. I knew nobody there. My French was terrible. I had high school French that just didn't work. And in that, those days, nobody spoke anything but Malagasy and French in Madagascar. So I struggled trying to do research toward this book on islands. And then I got a call one day from National Geographic who said, we want you to write a series of articles about a guy who's going to walk across the Congo Basin and do a great survey of biological diversity. And his name is Mike Fay. So that was my first work for National Geographic. And that was when I was walking for weeks through the swamps in a pair of Tiva sandals and river shorts behind this wonderful madman, Mike Fay, who was 
the explorer conservationist scientist that I was writing about. What did that feel like to be approached by Nat Geo? I had never aspired to write for Nat, Nat Geo because in those days I perceived them pretty correctly as a photo magazine that did not treat the writing very seriously. And so I was skeptical of them. They called me out of the blue. You know, we want you for this assignment. Why do you want me? Well, never mind. We want you. And I said I was busy. Uh, I said, they described it and I said, sorry, but I'm working on a book about big predators. Monster of God. I'm busy. Goodbye. Hung up. And about a day or two later, they called back and it was a wonderful fellow named Oliver Payne, who was the editor, called me and said, we want you to do this. And I said, thank you. That sounds very interesting. Mike Fay, I've heard of him. Um, but no, I'm busy. I'm doing this book. Goodbye. Uh, and I had a very good friend, Nick Nichols, the wonderful photographer, Michael Nick Nichols, who was one of their star photographers. And he was going to be photographing this, this saga, Mike Fay walking across the Congo. And he wanted me to be the writer. And he persuaded them that they wanted me to be the writer. So they called me back two days later and said, no, no, we really want you to be the writer. What's it going to take to get you to, to yes? And I thought, well, okay, there are three components here. First of all, there's the there's the sheer physical adventure exploration component, walking for weeks and weeks through the Congo forest with Mike Fay. That's a positive. That's going to be great. Secondly, there is the literary component. I'm going to write my best stories, and either they're going to chainsaw edit them, put them through a meat grinder, or not, and I'm either going to be happy literarily with the result or not. And thirdly, there's the money, and they're offering me a lot of money. I thought about it and said, all right, two out of three isn't bad, so I'll take a chance. And in fact, I, I, I was fortunate to get three out of three. They treated my writing, this fellow Oliver Payne treated my writing very well, and I wrote a series of three articles, and then there were follow-ups, and this project became known as the Mega Transect, and it, mm -hmm. it became sort of an, an iconic National Geographic enterprise. It's huge. It's uh, and so not only did you, not only were you approached by Nat National Geographic, but you rejected them several times. Um, and the and the price it, the price went up when I did. And the price went up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I need you to negotiate things for me. Um, but. I mean that that's that's amazing. It's it's it sounds like a dream. I mean, but but I also am aware that you you had you know so Monster of God was kind of going on in the background of your writing. So how did you kind of negotiate the timeline for that book with that expedition? Well, I just I, I just was a little bit late. One of the hardest things about writing a book is predicting within years when you're going to be done. The Song of the Dodo took me eight years. Monster of God took five or six years. Most of my spillover took five or six years. Um, the quickest I've ever written a book was the, is the book that I've just written about COVID-19, which is actually a book about the virus, the, the origins and evolution of the virus and the people who study it, the virus SARS-CoV-2. And 2021, I worked harder than I have ever worked in my life. I worked 365 days, got up early in the morning and delivered that book last December 17th, and it'll be published in October. And they were saying, look, this deadline 
is a really a hard deadline. You have to be done by December 31st, 2021. And when they were going to publish this book, because there's a pandemic going on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I worked really hard and I delivered it two weeks early. That's amazing. And we were kind of corresponding at the tail end of, you know, you completing that book. And I was saying to you, I would love to talk with you, but I'm, I think what I said was I'm as busy as 10 woodpeckers right now. Yeah. yeah. Um, and b by the way, I, I do want to talk about um, that book if you, if you can speak on it. Can a little you know, bit. Yeah. Down the road. Great. But kind of before we get into that, I just wanted to talk about, you know, kind of, kind of going back a little bit, you know, you moved to Montana and you had, I mean, what a, what a great sort of playground to work within and, you know, kind of more local for you to to tell these stories and get involved in, um, you know, fly fishing and winter camping, all of these great activities and writing about them. Um, and sort of, so it sounds like you kind of had an evolution. You started off more as a fiction writer and then kind of got interested in natural science writing, science writing. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what was it like? Was there one experience or, um, you know, history or something that got you interested? Were you um, reading about past authors, past uh, natural science authors? What, were you drawing from things and, and kind of, yeah, where that kind of came from? First of all, it wasn't a complete switch out of the blue. I was, uh, I was a nature kid. I was one of those kids. Maybe you were too, Serena. I was. Yeah, you were. Okay. So you get this then. <laughs> Since the age of about six, I was fascinated with insects. Since the age of about 12, I was deeply interested in three things, insects, reptiles, and writing. And so then I went to high school. I went to a Jesuit high school in Cincinnati, and I started having some great teachers. Teachers are really important to many people. And they, they, I had three or four life-changing teachers. But I never had a life-changing biology teacher. Mm. I had some very fine people who taught me biology. I took maybe one biology class in high school and one in college. Smart people, good people, but nobody who sort of took hold of my brain and said, David, you don't know what science is. You like nature. Now I'm going to teach you what science is. Because science is different from loving nature. It's closely related but it's not the same thing. And collecting butterflies, I collected butterflies, is not science. But collecting butterflies and then asking questions about why the butterflies have wings this color and why their life history is this or that, that leads to science. I never had that teacher. But I had great English teachers who said, you want to write, okay, I'm going to, help you discover how to teach yourself to be a writer. I had those teachers. So I went off in the literary direction. I was obsessed with William Faulkner, and I left the nature's part behind until I moved to Montana. And then I said, oh, here I am. I'm here partly because I love nature. I want to be in the mountains. I want to be in the woods. I want to be on the rivers. I want to live someplace where there are grizzly bears as well as black bears and where there are trout. And I want to learn more about that. So I started taking non-degree graduate courses in zoology at the University of Montana while I tended bar and worked as a waiter. And I started reading nonfiction in a way that I had never read nonfiction. I had been that literary nerd who was taking courses in 
the modern novel and et cetera, et cetera, and, and reading Thomas Pynchon and reading Vonnegut and reading whoever else, Joan Didion. And I started reading nonfiction. I started reading J.B.S. Haldane's essays on natural science. Started reading Lewis Thomas, little early Stephen Jay Gould, uh, Herodotus. Um, started reading history and philosophy and nonfiction. Uh, started reading Darwin, reading about Darwin and then reading Darwin. And then to my great fortune, my interest in natural science, the natural world and evolution came together with my interest in writing. And I discovered that you can be a nonfiction writer and the world is your material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm wondering about if you had had a really incredible biology teacher, if you had gone down that route of more becoming a scientist or a biologist or, you know, an ist, um, what we kind of, I could wonder if you would have found writing in there or I just, I'm like, Yes, David would have made a great scientist, but also what we would have lost if you hadn't become an author. I I can't, you know. <laughs> First of all, thank you. Secondly, I think that your intuition is similar to my intuition, that if I had had that teacher and I had gotten a PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology and had gone somewhere, and if I was lucky enough to become, say, a, you know, a tenure track assistant professor or whatever, which I don't assume. I know. I know how hard it is. You know, there are lots of people with PhDs in science that, you know, being an academic is not the only route. Agency work, uh, hugely important. Conservation NGOs, hugely important. All of that. If I had been one of those people, I have a feeling that, as I started to read Ed Wilson and others, I would have said, "Gee, you know." I want to write as well as be a scientist. Mm-hmm. I, I I would not be at all surprised if that was the that was the alternative, you know, the antimatter reality of what my life would have been. <laughs> yeah, no, I I think I think that's spot on. I I had a conversation with um, Dr. Sylvia Earle several weeks ago, and you know she grew up in Florida, surrounded by the ocean, and I was kind of wondering for her, you know, if she had grown up in Ohio or you know the middle of the United States, middle of nowhere near the ocean if she thought she would have found the ocean and she said yes she 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 felt like this deep ingrained call for her life's work as you know just something that she would have found regardless and I think that resonates with you as well yes absolutely absolutely can I tell you a quick story about Sylvia Earle we're not we're you know I'm acquainted with her not a lot but I respect her very highly I've had a couple of you know very cordial dinners with her, et cetera, over the years. My wife and I, Betsy, were in the Galapagos on a trip where I was going to be one of the lecturers on a boat. So we were walking around the Galapagos and we were on Santa Cruz Island, which is where the Charles Darwin Research Station is. And we're walking around the Charles Darwin Research Station and I'm talking to a couple of scientists and we run into a bird guy that I knew from Brazil a little bit. And he said, hey, Kwaman, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? How did you get here? Yeah, on the Galapagos. No big deal. Well, I took the 41 down the coast. And um, and uh, he said, uh, and I said, well, this is my wife, Betsy. We're, we're here. And he said, well, I'm here with Peter Seligman, and, and we've got a 
Conservation International Donors group that we're taking around, and we've got Sylvia Earle and Queen Noor of Jordan, the woman who was married to Prince or to King Hussein of Jordan, an American woman originally. Um, Lisa Hallaby, I believe, for some reason was her original name. Don't ask me why I know that. But anyway, Queen, we've got Sylvia Earle and Queen Noor here. And uh, we're going to meet for lunch. And, you know, do you want to join us? Sure. So he led us back uh, to where Peter Seligman was. And I, it was the first time I had met Peter. I knew Russ Mittermeier very well. But I had not met Peter Seligman of Conservation International. And then there was this, there's this woman, this statuesque, attractive, very dignified woman. I dressed, think dressed all in white, probably about 5'10". <laughs> and... She's walking toward us next to Peter, and she comes walking up, and Peter starts to introduce us, and I stick out my hand and say, you must be Sylvia Earle. And it was Queen Noor. <laughs> I know. As you said 510, I was like, I don't think Sylvia Earle is that tall. <laughs> Peter, oh, Peter was, and then I apologize. Oh, oh, of course. No, of course. Queen Noor, your majesty, you're very, very... <laughs> Pleased to meet you. And oh, this is Sylvia Earle over here. Hi, Sylvia. Great to meet you, too. Anyway, d another digression. It's amazing. I just, I love, I love all these little stories. I mean, yeah, it's Dr. Sylvia Earle. She's, um, I've, I've never met her in person. She's but, great. Um, she's great. She, she's amazing. Um, huge, like, larger than life personality. But I do believe she's, she's a very petite woman. Um, but tough. But, uh, but tough, exactly. She's done stuff. Absolutely. And taken names. Yeah, absolutely. Um, great story about that. But um, let's kind of go back to the, the the scope of things. So you have you have so many different interests in so many different topics. And, you know, it takes you years to write a book. How do you kind of decide, like, all right, I'm really interested in predators. I want to spend five to six years of my life writing about predators or, you know, I'm really interested in Ebola. Let me spend a good chunk of my life writing about Ebola. How do you, there, there, I, I, I see you similar to me as sort of, well, maybe this is just me. I'm kind of a, a jack, jack of all, <laughs> master of none. I, I have a lot of different things that I dabble in, um, but I can't imagine, you know, being interested in, in everything that makes nature incredible and then having to focus and dial in on, you know, very specific things. So how do you, how do you, what is that thought process like for you? Is it just purely interest? Yeah, I can answer that, I think, Serena, in two ways. First of all, a book project usually begins for me with the magazine project. Mm. I get interested in some topic, something that's peculiar and fringe, out on the edge, and yet somehow important, somehow significant, somehow connected with core concern. And I pitch a magazine article to somebody and they say yes. Somebody eventually says yes. And, and I go off and do a magazine story. And then in a minority of cases, I have this feeling that the, st the story, I barely scratched the surface. And this subject is much more interesting than just a 5,000 word magazine story. And so that becomes a potential book project. And I always like to be working on a book as well as working on shorter things, magazine journalism, op-eds or whatever I'm working on. So those 
uh, Song of the Dodo, Island Biogeography, began as a magazine story. Uh, Monster of God began as probably two magazine stories, one about the Asiatic lion in India and one about Komodo dragons. And then I thought, I want to do a book on this. Um, Spillover began uh, with magazine work. I got very, very interested in Ebola and then from there got interested in the whole subject of emerging infectious diseases, particularly viruses. But the other answer to your question is that I'm interested in ecology and evolutionary biology. So, for instance, when I got interested in scary viruses, what really connected me to them and made me want to go deeply into it was when I realized that the emergence of a new virus, a dangerous new virus into humans, is all about ecology and evolutionary biology. Ecology and evolutionary biology of scary viruses. Mm-hmm. And um, my, my most recent published book in 2018, The Tangled Tree, it's about, um, it's about the idea of the tree of life as the picture of evolutionary history and the fact that molecular biology has revealed in the last 30 or 40 years that the story is a whole lot more complicated than Darwin thought or anybody else thought because of phenomena such as horizontal gene transfer, genes moving sideways from one kind of creature into another sometimes carried by viruses. Infectious heredity is one name for it. Genes being carried from one species into another species, even across different families, even across different kingdoms of life, by viral infection. Ecology and evolutionary biology. So I wrote this book that my poor publisher didn't realize when they asked me um, to write this book that essentially it was going to be a history of molecular phylogenetics (laughs) intended for the general public. But I know that you are going to make it so fascinating and interesting. And on that note, you know, so you've got this thread of evolutionary biology kind of running through most of your work. Um, But as you said, it's so complicated that you could there's just so many ways and directions that you can go from that one thread. Um, Let's talk about medium. So, you know, you as you're talking about sort of the the general public, you know, these books are these are decent sized books, you know, and um, I I know people in sort of my community that are really jazzed about science that want to read, you know, big books and, and learn a lot and um, are just willing to, to put in that kind of effort and work. Um, but then you have, you know, sort of these smaller projects um, for magazine. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the difference in those mediums, what your who your audience is, how those kind of relate to each other? Are you trying to reach the masses? Are you trying to reach sort of niche um, thinkers? Full-length nonfiction books like The Song of the Dodo, which is 600 pages, uh, are big chunks of, of work and require um, a certain depth of interest from in people. Um, who is my intended audience? It's always everybody. You know, it's it's your grandmother and um, and your brother who is a lawyer, and the guys that I used to play city league hockey with. I mean, that's not to say that I reach all those people, but my intended audience is not oh just people who are interested in nature, just people who are interested in conservation, just people who are interested in science. No, I really want to reach as many people as possible and engage them, catch them. 
by writing about science, which is what I usually do, and writing about complicated science and explaining it clearly, but doing more than that, being a storyteller, delivering mysteries, delivering suspense, del making the pages turn, writing about people, writing human stories, making people laugh, making people cry. Mm -hmm. uh, all of those things uh, are what keep the pages turning. Mm -hmm. And I think that the first, absolutely, the first responsibility of a writer, no matter how committed he or she is to conservation or the climate change issue or environmental justice or social justice or whatever, the first responsibility of a writer is to be interesting. Make it interesting. Make it not just a duty, but a pleasure to read about the environmental justice movement. Maybe there's a great character, an inspirational character who embodies this. And you could tell the story of her life in this book and convey a whole lot of important thought and information about the environmental justice movement. And yet you're telling a story that might make people laugh and might make people cry in certain parts. That's, that's the ideal for me. That's what I'm trying to do. Well, your writing has definitely made me laugh um, many times. And to me, that that is the crux of why I love your work so much. It, you're, you're drawing from so many different things, so many different experiences, um, this, this interwoven connection between our environments and people. And you go into deep dives into some of these people that become characters in, in these books. Um, and and it's all it's all it, it's so fascinating. And the way that you write, uh, the way that you are a storyteller, it's it's not sort of the the dry essays of the eighteen fifties. You know, it, it, that's inaccessible. It's very accessible. Um, so I, I yeah, <laughs> so huge 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 um, you know kudos to to your writing. But back to I guess this connection with the with the people that you sort of write about and interweave into your into these these books um why why is that important to you like why why do we need to hear so in depth about the culture and sort of um uh respecting indigenous community like all these things that you kind of um talk about as they relate to the subject matter why is it important that we have these relationships in in the stories? Well, that's a that's a good hard question. Um, it's partly because I think people want to read about people. They want to read stories with human characters, even if they're reading about science. They want to read about the scientists who do the work, who solve the mysteries, who push forward with courage against adversity and either succeed or, or, or fail, sometimes failing very honorably, gloriously, sometimes tragically. Uh, those make good stories. And about people's populations, indigenous peoples, peoples who um, are underrepresented and underblessed and underserved with resources and opportunities and things like that. You know, I'm an old 60s liberal, you know, white male, George McGovern, liberal activist. My first book was about community organizing on the west side of Chicago. My first novel, I was a community organizer 
in on the west side of Chicago before Barack Obama made it popular, <laughs> made it fa- made it fashionable, made it. You were a hipster for social organizing. Yeah, so I was one of those. You know, I was one of those kids in a blue work shirt on the west side of Chicago, going door to door in 1968, and then I wrote a novel about that. But I wrote a novel about it because I had, I had done that, and I had done it because it seemed to me really important in terms of of justice. And that's not to, you know, I don't want to portray myself as any sort of crusader because I've spent most of my life not being an activist, but being a writer. But there is that instinct in me that this is, this is important. And there's a lot of that, I hope, in Monster of God. Mm -hmm. Um, It's about indigenous people and how we all want big, big dangerous predators to survive. I mean, you and I and conservationists and people who care about nature and care about biological diversity. We all want there to be tigers and lions and Komodo dragons and saltwater crocodiles. We want to know that those exist. But one of the things that drove that book was my recognition that everybody benefits, everybody enjoys the benefits of the fact that polar bears and tigers still exist on this planet, but everybody doesn't pay the costs. Mm -hmm. The local people pay the costs. Big, dangerous predators are costly and inconvenient for humans who make their livings on the landscape. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the core things that I wanted to get across in that book. So it was a great opportunity for me to travel to parts of Australia that were still indigenous people's territories and spend time with them and go out crocodile harpooning with them. Um, and to spend time with the Maldari people in the Gear Forest in Western India and, and sleep in their, their mud huts and, and be privileged to share their food, um, be privileged to share these wonderful smoke-flavored yogurt made from, oh. made from the, the buffaloes that they grazed in this forest that was inhabited by lions, where they would send a 12-year-old boy out with the equivalent of a seven iron from a golf bag to defend their livestock against lions. Mm-hmm. I wanted to tell their story a bit. Yeah. And, and you do it with so much respect. And back to that yogurt description, just <laughs> your descriptions of some of the food that you come across on your adventures are just, oh my gosh, it's just so beautiful. Um, but, and I think that book even though it was written, um, you know, about 20 years ago now, um, is so timely to today as we lose these huge predators in mass, you know, across the world. But but also recognizing what that actually entails for us. We have to change our perspective about predators in relationship to us. You know, we can't have our cake and eat it, too. We can't have these um, huge, beautiful Predators that sometimes come into our urban areas, eat our livestock, sometimes kill us. You know, we can't we can't have all of it without the I guess sort of the cost of of that. Monster of God is the man eating predator in the jungles of history and in the mind. Apologies for the you know the gender uh, invidiousness of the term man eater, <laughs> but you know it is that's the term that yes you know. Um, so I was writing about big predators that are ferocious enough and solitary enough such that a single individual of one of those species 
can and occasionally does kill and eat a human being. That was my category. I called it called them alpha predators. Lions, tigers, Komodo dragon, saltwater crocodile. And and, if, and the, the brown bear generally doesn't fall in that category, although I know, you know, you know far better that brown bears, excuse me, black bears can be dangerous and people can get killed if they mess with black bears. Mm-hmm. But it's not quite like walking into the forest with brown bears or grizzly bears. Mm-hmm. Still, um, you know that the problem... In California, in California, the problem of of adjudicating between black bears and people is a complicated problem, mm-hmm. I am sure. And but it's important. And and in order for there to be black bears, and there used to be, I mean, the brown bear used to be the state animal of California, right? Nineteen twenty four was our last. Yeah. Um, but in order for that to continue, people have to realize that they can't have that simply by, you know, writing a check for a hundred dollars twice a year to the World Wildlife Fund. Mm-hmm. They have to look in the mirror. What am I doing that makes it harder for black bears to survive in the state of California? Is mm-hmm. if if I, you know, if I drive two hours every day to work, does that have an effect? Yeah. If I have a number of children, does that have an effect? Yeah. If I um, I eat meat from the grocery store, does that have an effect? Is that significant? Yeah. Um, what else? If I say I want to build my dream home in the mountains and I've bought 100 acres on the edge of such and such national forest mm-hmm. and I'm going to cut a road in there and build my dream house, does that have an effect? Yeah. Yeah, that's where I live to a T. I mean, the our, our, yeah, the development that's that's happened in my area, um, you know, in the last ten years is is insane, and mostly development for second homes or Airbnbs. So it's not even like a local community that we're getting at the end of this. Um, but you you're, you know, the issues run the gambit. I mean. What do you think are the solutions for some of this human wildlife conflicts that you, you know, as you have interviewed and spoken to so many people that are dealing with this globally, is it that, you know, we do that introspection and sort of change our way, you know, because then I go back to like putting all the onus on the individual, you know, versus these big companies and corporations for solving like the plastic crisis and recycling and you know, how we solve climate change um, through our individual actions. And um, I guess, is it is it working locally? Is it continuing to talk to in- indigenous people? Is it is it the combination? What do you see are some of these solutions? Uh, what I have to say about that is generally um, somewhat controversial and unpopular. Um, and, and But not all of what I have to say. First of all, I think... Um, both um, action at the agency, the government, the international level is hugely important, and therefore we need to we need to vote, educate ourselves about this, and and vote intelligently, uh, and hold our leaders to account for things at the at the collective and structural level that need to be done, and we need to look in the mirror, and. 
you know, some people ask me, what's, well, what, what are the, what are the important things I can do as an individual? And then I give my answer that's really provocative and, and unpopular. Don't have children, don't ride around on airplanes, and don't eat meat. Yeah, those are the big, yeah. Whoa! Yeah, I know. <laughs> We're sorry we asked. <laughs> You're never invited again. Yeah, but that's, and none of us are perfect on those things. Mm-hmm. My wife and I don't have children. and I've ridden around on a lot of airplanes, but not in the last two years. I haven't been on an airplane. And, and now that I've learned I can write an entire book by Zoom, research an entire book by Zoom sitting in this room right here mm-hmm. where I've been for the last two years. I will not ride airplanes as much for research as I did in the past. And we are, and my wife and I are not vegetarians. We're not vegans, but we're, we're having more vegan meals every week. You know, we're, we're pushing ourselves in that direction. Mm-hmm. So nobody, nobody is perfect on those things, but those but the, the, those are the answers as far as I'm concerned. Those are the, and I've seen studies of this, that the three things that have the largest impact on your, your climate footprint, and by extension, your ecological footprint as an individual are the addition of each child that you have, how many airplane flights that you take, especially international flights, but how much you fly around an airplane, and how much meat you eat. So... Um, I'm not making it up that those are the three things that have the greatest impact on the biological diversity of this planet. Those, I, I think that that is, and I have studies in my computer somewhere that put metrics mm-hmm. to those points. Mm-hmm. So do you think that's also true uh, across the globe or do you think that's more of a United States sort of Well, no. When you, as soon as you talk about population, as soon as you talk about how many kids you have, you need to talk about population multiplied by consumption. And you need to dispel the notion that people who live on the edge of poverty and have a number of children are the problem. No, consumption is the problem. So that two kids growing up middle class in the U.S. will in their lifetimes consume more than eight kids living in a, um, a waddle house in a village in Madagascar mm-hmm. or in, uh, in Democratic Republic of the Congo. So first thing that needs to be avoided is any sort of, you know, finger pointing about, oh, those people over there, they have, you know, they have these big families. Well, how much are they consuming? Mm-hmm. They're consuming squat because they're starving. So they... The number of kids that they have, the number of starving kids that they have versus the number of well-fed kids that you have is not, uh, is, is something that has to be weighed by numbers times consumption and not just numbers. I haven't said that very concisely, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a disproportionate impact on those marginalized communities and then a disproportionate blame on those communities for the problems that we're facing. So I completely agree. Um, we recently had Mark Dowie, who wrote um, the Haida Gwaii lesson on the podcast. Um, and, you know, his sort of argument was this undercurrent of racism in the conservation world and how um, the impacts of wanting to preserve and protect, you know, quote unquote wilderness, but but displacing people in the process, uh, you know, 
his book is kind of all about that. I just wonder where you fall on, you know, how we kind of manage protected areas and conserving, um, you know, reforesting habitat, habitat loss, and then the people that live in those communities or the people that we've pushed out of those communities for the sake of conservation. Really important, really important question um, at the at the strategic level and at the moral level. Yes, most of our protected areas, most of our famous national parks around the world have been established for the protection of non-human species at the expense of local peoples. Yes, that's true. Does that mean that we should give up on protected areas? No, I don't think so. We need protected areas that take that into account. Should we give up on designated wilderness in the United States with a with a capital W, as in the Wilderness Act and and you know the designated wildernesses we have in in Montana and elsewhere? I'm sure they I'm sure there are designated wilderness in in California too. Um, well, I think most smart conservation groups have realized that the moment for designating more wildernesses has passed. And we need to use different tools and different approaches now. Mm -hmm. um, but we need to have protected areas because, you know, one of the reasons you don't have grizzly bears anymore in California is that there are not enough big, untrammeled patches of grizzly bear habitat. Mm -hmm. You can't have grizzly bears if you don't have habitat. And, you and we don't have the habitat. I mean, I, it drives me kind of crazy when people talk about reintroducing grizzlies in California currently because grizzly habitat is all the places where we live currently, like Los Angeles, you know, just sort of these wide open places where people currently live. We can't just throw grizzlies into the forested habitats that we have left because that's not their natural habitat. So, yeah, no, there, there's so many issues just on a yeah, on a yeah. note Yeah, um, yeah. On the positive side, there are models for how we can do this. One of the great models is Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique which is a, a national park that was devastated by, I can't remember how many, 20-some years of, of, of terrible civil war. Um, and the rebel armies were using this national park essentially as a hideout, and the government armies were bombing it and strafing it. And, and um, both sides were killing the big animals, you know, elephants and hippos and the great antelope and all of those sort of things killing them either for meat or killing them for ivory in order to buy ammunition. So this place, Gorongosa National Park, was just devastated. And then around 20 years ago, the president of Mozambique met an American named Greg Carr, who was a kid from Idaho who had made about $800 million with a couple of very, very brilliant computer-related startups. And then at the age of 40, had more money that he knew what to do with and was interested in two things, conservation of biological diversity and social justice, and had thought very deeply about the roots of both of those concerns. And um, he had a friend named Samantha Power, who is now, what, our ambassador to the UN. And he and Samantha Power started talking about this and what they could do and how it could be done. And he started, he started an institute, um, funded an institute at Harvard and they brought the president of Mozambique over, and he had a conversation with this guy. And this president of Mozambique said, you wouldn't be interested in 
rehabilitating my Gorongosa National Park, would you? And Greg said, hmm, maybe, but we would have to do it as a peace park, as a social justice park, and not just as a biological diversity park. So I want to know about the people whose land that is, the people who live roundabout in the buffer zone. I want to do it only if we can make that park come back to life as the best thing that has happened to those people in 50 or 100 years. Mm -hmm. And he's been doing that with partnership of a lot of wonderful um, Mozambican men and women and scientists from around the world, including Ed Wilson, who took a particular interest in this. So Gorongosa National Park is one of the, the models. For instance, the park itself has a whole division devoted to running girls' clubs in the villages, in the, the dozens and dozens of villages around the perimeter of the park, you know, for little girls, to give them a chance um, to get educated, to stay in school, um, to have a sense of fun, a sense of play on some days of the week, but on other days of the week, have um, have teaching that helps them uh, improve on their literacy in a couple different languages, gives them academic ambitions, protects them from being married off at the age of 12, and uh, helps them turn themselves into full citizens with horizons. Uh, the park is doing that. That and what a great ex I mean that's that's exactly they're I feel like they're doing exactly the right thing working with these communities not pushing them out and you know trying to make their lives better you know in conjunction with making the environment better um, working with working with not against so I I think that's that's really great um, I do kind of want to switch gears a little bit as we kind of wrap up and talk about spillover and your new book that's coming out in October. Um, so Zarnock disease is terrifying. I mean, spillover was terrifying. And I read it um, in 2020. So it was kind of in the the heart, um, the starts of the pandemic. It was very scary. Um, I wonder, you know, just your your initial thoughts on where we are at on this in the state uh, globally, as far as SARS-CoV-2 goes and COVID-19. Do you think we are going to get out of this thing? Have we learned any lessons? Where are we, David? What's going on? Um, you know, I in the course of researching this book, I, um, I couldn't travel. I couldn't fly to Wuhan, China, for obvious reasons. As I said, I didn't leave this room. And I decided the way to research this book that's possible during the pandemic is to uh, focus on the virus itself, its origin, evolution, and its fierce journey through the human population and the people who study it. So I decided to interview virologists and, and a few public health people, scientists who work on this around the world. And I ended up interviewing 94 people by Zoom, most of them for an hour and a half, recording Zoom interviews just the way we're doing it here. On the very same stack of books that I have on my desk, propping this computer up, um, one of which is fundamental virology, and the other, another is Charles Darwin's zoology and notes from the Beagle, uh, predators and predation. These are these thick books that mm -hmm. form a good stand. Um, 
So I talked to these 94 people ranging from Tony Fauci to George Gao, who's head of the China CDC, to Eddie Holmes, a brilliant evolutionary virologist in Sydney, Australia, to Sharon Peacock in, in the UK, who was the founder of their genome sequencing consortium, uh, Marion Koopmans, a wonderful virologist in, in uh, Rotterdam, the Netherlands, and, um, and asking them about this virus. What do they think the origins are? What's the, what's the evidence? How is it evolving? What's going to happen next? People who, such as Sharon Peacock, who track the variants. Where are we going? Are we ever going to be through with this virus? Are we ever going to be through with this pandemic? And then at the end, I always ask them, um, do you think this pandemic will have been bad enough that we will learn from it and be better prepared for the next one? And they and they all gave me interesting answers. Uh, and so you're asking me a similar sort of question. First of all, um, we're not done with this pandemic yet. So this virus is never going to go away, never going to be gone from the human population. And now it's in all sorts of non-human animal population. We've seen that it can infect snow leopards and lions and tigers and zoos. It has closed down the mink farming industry in Europe because so many mink had to be culled, millions and millions of mink. It's probably a good thing to close down the mink industry. And 60%, according to one study, 60% of the white-tailed deer in Iowa are positive for COVID. White-tailed deer in Iowa. So this virus, it's not, an, it's not a virus that is suspiciously well adapted to infecting humans. It's a generalist virus capable of infecting all kinds of mammals. Uh, it's never going to be gone. So I would guess that 40 years from now, children will be vaccinated against this virus, but probably in the form of a multi, multivalent vaccine that protects them against all kinds of coronaviruses and maybe some other viruses. But it'll still be around, and it may very well still be dangerous. Some people say, well, isn't it true that after viruses have infected humans for a while, then they become endemic and then they're not harmful anymore. And it's just like having the common cold. And the answer to that is no, no, that is not a rule. There is no evolutionary reason why a virus that's transmitting well necessarily will evolve toward being less virulent. Mm -hmm. If that virus does most of its transmitting before it causes most of its symptoms, which this does. So Darwinian natural selection operating on this virus to make it more and more transmissible, the Delta variant more transmissible than what was before that, the Omicron variant more transmissible than the Delta variant, this natural selection can't see whether this virus is killing one person in 100, one person in 10, or one person in 1,000. Natural selection doesn't care about that. It's irrelevant to the ongoing evolution of transmissibility in this virus. Mm -hmm. So this virus will not necessarily ever stop being dangerous. Measles virus. We've had a measles vaccine for 60 years. People still die. Kids in the Congo still die of measles every year. It's still a dangerous virus. Mm -hmm. People just don't think of it as dangerous because it doesn't have to be a dangerous virus if we could get everybody vaccinated. So I think we'll come out of the pandemic stage we get enough people vaccinated, enough people infected that 
this virus will continue to flare up in pockets where people are not protected and kill some people and make some people sick. But our medical systems, our healthcare systems won't be overwhelmed. We'll be able to deal with it and, and we'll live with a certain annual COVID fatality rate, but it'll be much lower than now. And then another pandemic will come along caused by another RNA virus I'm so curious to to read this new book of yours, just to kind of get at the heart of some of these questions that you ask these experts. And I mean, the when I when I first was you know was reading about uh, it was like December. There was this kind of news on our disease that was kind of coming up at Wuhan, and my my first thought was, yes, this is going to come over to the United States, and we're not prepared for it, and. I just kind of immediately knew that we were not going to work together well and we weren't going to play well with others globally and and civilly when it came to this virus. I just 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 knowing what I know about how the United States works, we were such a complicated people <laughs> with so many contradictions. But I just kind of this this I'm worried about this collective um, forgetting about how bad this was, and then not preparing ourselves for the next one, especially if we have one that's even more virulent, more contagious than, you know, SARS-CoV-2 and its variants. And we could easily have that. We could easily have one that is just as contagious and has a much, uh, is much more virulent, has a much higher case fatality rate. That could easily happen. And that's why Ebola, like, that's why Ebola is so fascinating to me and spillover was so scary um, the, there's one passage that I kind of want to point to here, and it, it's what really stuck with me. It's um, Serena, can we tell can we tell your your audience that this book, um, besides being scary, I hope it's also, <laughs> it's also so good. I hope so, so I hope it's also in in a perverse way fun to read and fascinating it, it, to read. It was a page turner for sure. I mean, yes, I am. I am not doing it. <laughs> okay. How scary it is. This is incredible, everybody. So please read the novel. Um, but uh, there, there's this moment when, um, let's see here. Um, yeah. So you're you're in the forest, and there's this um, the gemo, the hemo. I don't know how you pronounce it. This um, sort of this this like this demon or this sort of oh yeah spiritual. How do you being. how do you how do you spell it? G-E-M-O. Yeah, Gemo. This would be in Gemo. A Rep- Republic of the Congo, I think. Yes. So you you have this the this, this story that you tell about how this community deals with a Gemo and how a Gemo acts like Ebola, you know, can come into a village, ravage a village, kill people. But then this community has come, what, come up with their own cultural, spiritual practices to deal with the Gemo. And that is, you know... Um, going straying away from their kissing ceremony, where you know they would kiss the the body as part of the funerary practices, isolating the body. So I, I I don't know. I thought that was so fascinating and sort of going back to sort of like traditional ecological knowledge and how these communities maybe didn't understand the hard science behind how these viruses worked, how they spread, but they they still had knowledge that was useful for protecting them. Um, do you think that there are any like parallels here as far as going back to some of this older knowledge? And I, I guess 
this this idea of of remembrance and this idea of passing on that these communities you know maybe didn't even have written language but oral histories that they could pass on this incredible helpful knowledge in dealing with something like Ebola um I don't know just your thoughts on that well I hope that um yes I hope that there will be some of that for instance I hope people will start to notice that it's very dangerous to refuse vaccination and to pers- and to encourage other people to refuse vaccination and there are, there are, there are tragic numbers and tragic in the literal Greek sense I think tragic numbers coming out of um of our hospitals and our morgues now about how most of the people who are suffering badly from COVID right now in the U.S. are unvaccinated. Now, I know that there are a number of different reasons why people are might be resistant to vaccination. Some of those, particularly in communities of color, are very, very understandable going back to the way uh, Western and American science has, and, and medicine have ill-treated uh, African-Americans, indigenous peoples in the U.S. horribly. There have been some horrible, you know, you go back to the Tuskegee experiments and all that. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say. Yeah. So that's, it, it, you know, is that paranoia? Is that illusion? No, that's real. That weariness has a real grounding. Uh, I don't want to judge too harshly the other sources of resistance, but much of them are far less legitimately grounded in reality than that. That's my polite way of putting it. Yes. Um, we have to get by that, and we can't get by that by demonizing or condescension. We have to get past it with, um, with patient education, um, education of kids in the schools in science, um, and in critical thinking, and in critical thinking, so that mm-hmm. people who spend half their time, even more than you and I probably, uh, on the internet, <laughs> um, will be able to say, well, there's a website that says X, Y, and Z, and two and two are five. Does that mean two and two are five? Or maybe should I examine who's running this website and where it comes from and what the supposed data are that these claims are based on. Critical thinking. We desperately need that. And we're not going to get through this without a whole lot more um, death and misery in the future unless unless we can do that. So I, I guess that was my next question. You kind of answered it already. You know, if you could wave a magic wand based off of everything, you know, the, the research that you've done the past year for your next book, um, what three things you would do to change, or three three things you would change um, that you think would help us get out of this or, or, or make the next pandemic less terrible? Boy, magic wand. Um, yeah, David. Yeah. Um, I would say it would be wonderful if people, if um, public education and private education now routinely embrace the idea of teaching natural history starting at about the fourth grade. And as you taught natural history, you taught kids about animals and forests. You would also be teaching them about how these creatures interact 
and you might not call that ecology, but it would you would be teaching ecology and where these creatures came come from, and why tree kangaroos in New Guinea resemble uh, desert kangaroos in Australia. Was that just coincidence? Is that a whim of God? No, no. They had maybe common origins, and you'd be treating treating evolution. You'd be teaching evolution, but you wouldn't call it evolution. That would be my first wish. My second wish, I don't know. That would be the that would be my first three wishes, I guess. Um, <laughs> All but into one. but after that, you know, adults, we need to, uh, you know, then you really need a magic wand for this. Uh, we need international cooperation on disease surveillance, viral discovery, funding of public health systems. We need health justice. We need one healthcare system in the U.S for everybody and not one for rich people and one for poor people. And we need better healthcare education and scientific education in low and in, low and middle income countries. You know, we need, we need a whole lot more conservation biologists being trained in the democratic Republic of the Congo. We need a whole lot more molecular biologists being trained in Gabon and central African Republic and doctors, infectious disease doctors, being trained in those places and more. I'd, I'd need a lot of mm-hmm. magic wands. <laughs> a lot of wishes. You know, yeah, but those are, those are just, I don't know if that's two, two thoughts or three, but that's what comes to mind immediately. Yeah, I mean, I hope we can make those things happen ahead of the next one. Are you hopeful? I am, I am always hopeful because, uh, because I consider hope a responsibility and an act of the will and not simply an emotional mood. So I think it's one's duty to be hopeful. And I am. Um, and we need to deal with this inherent tension between civil liberties and public health, between individual rights, the cowboy ethic in the Western United States, all of that stuff, and concern for community health. And I've known from the beginning of this pandemic that that was going to be a a major conundrum. It was obvious to anybody who was paying attention. And it is indeed probably the worst problem that we have right now, that conflict. Yeah. Um, I always wonder about some, you know, I guess, like, favorite artists of mine, you know, uh, like, I, I really love the band Radiohead. And I wonder... Sometimes like, oh, man, Tom York from Radiohead, he's never going to know Radiohead as a fan. He's, he, you know, he's never going to be able to enjoy the music the way that I enjoy it. I kind of feel that way about your books. Like, wh- <laughs> you know, like you're never going to be able to experience your books as a fan, you know, which it, it's it's just your your work is, is so powerful and funny and great and thorough and just it's it's so good, David. Um, but who are you reading in this, you know, in all of your massive spare time that you have, you know, since you've been writing this? <laughs> I just finished reading a book by uh, a brilliant Iranian-American um, scientist. She's at Harvard. Her name is Pardis Sabeti, and it's called Outbreak Culture, you know, nerd reading. We love nerd reading. We love we love that on the show. Uh, Wuhan Diary by Fang Fang, a Chinese writer. She's you know, in the city of Wuhan. Uh, I'm reading in the evening um, a book by Scott Anderson called The Quiet Americans. It's about four American espionage officers at the start of the Cold War, and it's all about how the Cold War got to be so cold 
And uh, I read a lot of history and history of science. I love reading nonfiction, um, but I can always, unless I look at my bookshelves, I always forget what I've, I've just finished reading. I just finished reading a, a wonderful book about Lafayette, the Marquis de Lafayette, the great Frenchman who helped uh, fight the American Revolution. So kind of all over the place. Yeah, all over the place. I don't read many novels anymore. Um, Is there a reason for that? Uh, yeah, I read nothing but novels for uh, the first part of my adult life. And then I, mm -hmm. that's not to say that I disdain novels and literature. I certainly, I, I certainly don't. But um, I just really, I really like artfully written nonfiction. And that's, that is the epitome of you, my friend, as an author. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Serena. Great to talk with you. Really enjoyed it. I appreciate it very much. I'm going to tell my wife that you compared me to Radiohead. <laughs> you can't. I don't know if that's a good thing to some people. To me, it's a, it's a, a great high, 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 high honor. So um, where can folks, before we, um, before we leave, where can folks um, get your new book? And um, what is it called? Oh, thank you for asking. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I forgot to say that myself. Um, it will be called Breathless. Breathless. The subtitle is the, the Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus. Coming from Simon & Schuster at your local independent bookstore and on Amazon and all those other places in October. But emphasis on local independent bookstore. Yes, right. That's my emphasis, too. I believe in those places. Yeah. Yeah. David, thank you so much for this conversation. It was seriously a blast. Uh, and I'll, uh, I'll, t I'll tweet it. I'll, I'll echo it on Twitter. Hey, peeps. I had this great conversation <laughs> with Serena. You should check it out. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation with David Quammen. And since he has two new books out since we recorded this conversation, we'll definitely have to have him back on the show. So, David, if you're listening come back anytime. You can find his complete list of works as well as more information about the man himself at davidquammen.com. And give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook at Earth to Humans Pod. And if you like today's episode, leave us a quick review and rating wherever you're listening now. It really helps others find the show. Today's episode was produced by me, Serena Simons, and our music today comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Mm -hmm.